grace, grace and peace be multiplied to each of you tonight in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me publicly thank Pastor Pennington for the wonderful privilege of being invited again to this beloved congregation that I have grown to have great and deep affection for and for the kind words of introduction and for blessing us richly tonight by the word that he shared with us in the last hour. It is a joy to be here with you tonight. If you get your copy of God's word, returning with me to Matthew chapter 28, I want to breathe a word of prayer and ask God's blessings on our time together. And then I want you to hear the reading of God's word up front, laying the reading of God's word as a foundation for everything else we will endeavor to say tonight. And then uh, after we've prayed and read, we'll plunge in and see what God has to say to us tonight, right out of what he has already said to us in his holy word. Let's pray. Well, Lord, our God, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. From the place where the sun rises to the place where the sun sets, your name alone is worthy to be praised. We praise you for the privilege of being gathered together tonight. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We praise you for the redeemed church of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the privilege to think your thoughts after you as you've revealed truth to us in the pages of the sacred scriptures. Open our eyes tonight that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only lest we deceive ourselves. I pray for physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word tonight faithfully and clearly. And may Christ alone be exalted. As the word is explained, we pray. Amen. Matthew 28, verses 16 <clears throat> through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. <clears throat> At the end of Matthew 27, Jesus is dead and buried. Praise God, that is not how the story ends. Matthew 28 records the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew tells us that several women went to the tomb to perform the burial rites on the body of Jesus. They are told in verse 6 by an angel, he is not here for he is risen. The angel also gave them instructions to go and tell the disciples of Jesus to meet him in Galilee. And as they went, they bumped into Jesus himself. And the risen Savior repeats the instructions to tell the disciples that he is alive and that they meet him in 
Galilee. After that brief report of the resurrection, the rest of Matthew 28 records two responses to the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 11 through 15 record the unbeliever's response to the resurrection. In those verses, we are told that the religious leaders bribed the soldiers to say that the disciples came and stole the body from the tomb while they, the soldiers, slept. It was a ridiculous lie. And yet, in verse 15, Matthew footnotes that this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And after the unbelievers' response to the resurrection, the rest of the chapter, the final paragraph, verses 16 through 20, our text for the night, is the believer's response to the resurrection. And that passage is climaxed with what I want to focus on tonight, the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we go any further, I want you to feel the tension of the text. There are two ways to respond to the resurrection of Jesus. You can, on one hand, like the religious leaders, stubbornly reject the truth of the resurrection. Or you can, as Jesus instructs the disciples, aggressively proclaim the truth of the resurrection. Our text bids us to do the latter. It begins in verse 16, where we are told the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Note that this is the first time the 12 are called the 11. 11 now because Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus is no longer a part of the group. Matthew 27, 5 says he hanged himself. Yet, 11, because Simon Peter, who denied Jesus, is still a part of the group. His failure was not final. Amazing grace gave a second chance. And so the 11 disciples went to Galilee to some unidentified but predetermined Galilean hillside. The Bible tells us in verse 17 that when they saw him, Jesus, they worshiped, but some doubted. As Jesus approached them at this Galilean mountainside, they fell prostrate on their faces in worship before him. It is the same way the women responded to Jesus in verse 9. This response of both the women and now the disciples make it clear as Matthew closes his gospel record that Jesus is infinitely more than a wise rabbi, a miracle worker, or a zealous reformer. The crucified Savior is the risen Lord, and he is worthy of our worship. Yet verse 17 says, some doubted. I just recently preached this text to my own congregation and spent a week reading various commentators trying to explain or explain away that phrase. I just accepted it at face value. as another testament to the unapologetic truthfulness of the gospel record. As they worship, these men are still in shock. And some of them doubt it. Yet, Jesus does not make a U-turn and go back down the mountainside. 
you know. It just doesn't seem to be a good way to start a worldwide mission. (laughs) But Jesus has no plan B. His response to however you read this worship but doubt in verse 17, his response, verses 18 through 20, is to entrust these doubting worshipers with his world mission. He gives them what we call the Great Commission. It is not the Great Commission because, as we often say, it is the last command of Jesus. There are actually later commands than this. And it is not the Great Commission because it is more important than the other commands of Jesus as if we can make a hierarchy of his commands. This is the Great Commission because it states for us in succinct terms the proper response to the risen Savior. The risen Savior commands his disciples to make disciples. I just want to walk you through this passage tonight. My assignment was to talk about Christ's commitment to his church, but I want you to see (laughs) as he instructs us what we should be doing as the church, these instructions are undergirded by the commitment of Christ to those who are his own. I want you to see three ways that we as the church and as members of the church may work to fulfill the Great Commission. Three ways. First, submit to the authority of Jesus. Submit to the authority of Jesus. Verse 18 begins the Great Commission with a claim, not a commission. The Great Commission begins with a bold claim of divine sovereignty. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority is more than power. Power is the ability to get things done. Authority is absolute power. It is jurisdiction. It is freedom of action. It is the legal right to use power. Jesus here does not merely, if I may say it that way, he does not merely claim to have all power. He claims all authority. Think of the magnitude of that statement. An athlete can have world-class skill. While he's on the field doing his thing, All the referee who is also on the field has is a whistle. But the authority of the referee can disqualify, overrule the skill of the athlete. Jesus is saying here the authority that the referee has on the ball field is the authority I have over the universe. Except no instant replay, commissioner's ruling, or fan protest can overrule the authority of Jesus. (laughs) Consider it in verse 18. Note the scope of Christ's authority. One word, do you see it? All. How much authority does he have? All authority. All means all, and that's all all means. (laughs) I published a book last year where I made a reference to this verse, and I said in that chapter, 
that if Christ has all authority, no one else has any. The editor in the process sent notes back to me and noted that statement and said, I think you might want to change that sentence. And I wrote back, I don't think I want to change that sentence. <laughs> I stand on that statement. If Christ has all authority, no one else has any. Don't judge that, friends. Don't judge the authority of Jesus based on the breaking news of the day. The proof that Jesus has all authority is the fact that he lived to make this claim. Just go back and read chapter 27. Read the chapters that lead up to our text. Jesus is betrayed and arrested and beaten and tried and condemned and crucified and buried. They did the worst they could do to someone. They crucified him expecting that they would be finished with him. But death was not the end of Jesus. Easter Sunday morning, God raised him from the dead. And after the brutality of his crucifixion, he lived again to declare all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is one of the most important Christological statements in the New Testament. I commend to you tonight, this statement leads, leaves no middle ground concerning Jesus. Either he is a liar or he is a lunatic or he is Lord of all. Not only notice the scope of Christ's authority, consider the sphere of Christ's authority. Where does this authority operate? He says, in heaven and on earth. In heaven refers to more than the Heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. It refers to spirit beings in the unseen realm. Meaning, Michael and his army of angels and Satan and his army of demons must all submit to the authority of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 says that God seated Jesus at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that can be named in this age and in the age to come. But not just in heaven. He says, I also have all authority on earth. And it's significant, he doesn't use the term world here, not referring merely to the false value system. He says planet Earth, land and sea, and everybody that lives in it. I'm in charge of everything. In fact, Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is the scope of his authority, all of it, the sphere of his authority in heaven and on earth. But also would you note the source of his authority? He says, it's been given to me. Given to me by God the Father. That in no way diminishes Jesus. In fact, it is declaring his equality with the Father. The Father's delight in his Son. John 3 verse 35 says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Psalm 2 verse 8. The Lord says to his anointed son, just ask me, and I'll give you the 
nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. Matthew 28 verse 18 declares that Psalm 2 and 8 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. Really, this is a comfort to believers, verse 18. But may I suggest, and I don't have time to hang out here, but there's no pulpit excuse for poor exposition, but, but verse 18 is a comfort to these disciples but it is a declaration of war against all who would oppose Christ. Acts 17, 30 and 31 says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So before I move on tonight, let me ask you personally, friend, how are things tonight between you and the Lord Jesus Christ? What are we to do to fulfill the Great Commission? It starts in verse 18. Submit to the authority of Jesus. Secondly, we are to obey the command of Jesus. The commission itself begins in verse 19, and there Jesus says to the disciples, go therefore and make disciples. Maybe the key statement in that opening clause of verse 19 is the term therefore, which strategically links the claim to the commission. If verse 18 is not true, verses 19 and 20 are meaningless. The authority of Christ is the fuel, the focus, the foundation of the Great Commission. Because I am who I am and because I am with you, you go. Make disciples of all the nations. What is the Great Commission that we find here in verses 19 and 20? Let me answer that three ways. First, Jesus instructs us to make disciples. Make disciples. He says in verse 19, well, the verse begins by saying, go. It is a participle that modifies the main command to make disciples, but it reads as a command in most of our English translations, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it is an important reminder that the church is not a stationary building, a geographic location. Or a lifeless institution. It is redeemed people on the move for Jesus. We are to be a going church for a coming Christ. For some of you, the Lord may call you to go across the oceans to live and serve the gospel in some foreign land among an unreached people group. For others, he, he may not be calling you to go across the oceans. He may call you to go across the room at school or at work. 
and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost person in spite of your fears of rejection and ridicule. But every disciple is to be on the go for Jesus. Doing what? He says, go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples is the singular imperative of the text, the divine command of Christ and the gospel mission of the church. This is the whole ballgame. This is what all of this is about. Make disciples. A disciple was a student of a rabbi, but it's, it's not the way we understand being a student, discipleship was more about commitment to a person than it was in, about enrollment in a school. The disciple would join himself to the rabbi to live with the rabbi in order to learn from the rabbi in order to become like the rabbi. And after he finished his rabbinical training, then that disciple would graduate, if you will, and be free to collect disciples, mass disciples of his own. But now at the end of the ministry of Jesus, before he returns to the Father, he does not authorize the disciples now to go out and make disciples for themselves. Oh, friends. You'll, you'll miss the significance of everything that is said about the church tonight if you don't, of course, the whole weekend, in fact, if you don't get the fact that the key to doing church right is to remember it's not about you. Disciples of Jesus are to make disciples of Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple? I don't know. I, I think a beautiful expression of Christian discipleship is Matthew 11, verse 29, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Discipleship, the life of discipleship is about following Jesus and learning from Jesus. Following Jesus and learning from Jesus. And when he tells us to make disciples... He is telling us to proclaim the gospel to the lost. And those who repent and believe become disciples of Jesus themselves. To be a disciple is to believe in Jesus, to belong to Jesus, to become like Jesus. And, and key to this process of becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ is to help others to follow Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to be helping others become followers of Jesus. That is the biblical way to church growth. That is the strategic way to advance the kingdom that is the only way to reach the next generation. Followers of Jesus are to be helping others to become followers of Jesus. And I, I hope it's obvious, but I feel the burden to just remind us. The Great Commission is not reserved for pastors, evangelists, and missionaries. It's the duty of every Christian. May I be bold enough to say tonight that a disciple that is not making disciples may himself not be one. And at best, a disciple who is not making disciples is disobedient, rebellious, and traitorous to the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful disciples make disciples. 
So the question I just uh, want to put on the table tonight, who are you helping to follow Jesus? That's a personal question. I support the church. I give to our missionary causes. I, I'm, I invite people to, to hear the pastor. All of that's great. But what are you personally doing to help someone follow Jesus? Jesus says to his disciples, make disciples. And he says to do it of all nations. There's a not so great commission in chapter 10 of Matthew. It's a limited commission at least where he tells them in Matthew 10 verse 6 as he sends them out, I only want, don't go into any uh, Gentile house, don't go in any Samaritan town. He says, I just want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He now lifts those restrictions and says, you're to make disciples of all the nations, of all ethnicities. Friends, the gospel condemns white supremacy, black lives matter, and any other race-based agenda. I'm glad to announce tonight, the Lord Jesus Christ is an equal opportunity savior. <laughs> and he seeks disciples of every language and nation and people and tribe. Acts 1 verse 8, he says, you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the unfinished task of the church. A lot of stuff in the news. And what, one thing that's happening that many are not paying attention to is, the, is an earthquake that took place in Turkey and Syria. And, and the last time I, I looked, I just, I just, a few days ago, I just couldn't look any further. The last time I looked, two or three days ago, more than 35,000 people had lost their lives in those earthquakes. That's more than half of the people who were at the Super Bowl last Sunday. Just imagine hundreds of, and thousands of people meeting their end without hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. It is a reminder, friends, the church is not a social club for insiders. It's a mission agency for outsiders. We're to make disciples of all the nations. But after he says make disciples, he then says mark disciples. After you make disciples, you mark the disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. At least we must conclude from this statement that Baptism is not a man-made tradition that you are free to accept or reject at your discretion. Christ commands us to make disciples. We refer to baptism as an ordinance, not a sacrament. To emphasize the fact that there is no saving power in the act of baptism. 
We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But baptism is the first act of obedience for one who is saved. The term literally means to immerse. It was the picture of dyeing cloth. You dip the cloth in the dye and the Cloth is then associated with the color of the dye. By water baptism, we identify ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is how the believer goes public with his or her faith. I didn't put this in, in, the, in the manuscript, but this is a good place to say the baptism also is a reminder that the Great Commission is not fulfilled by saint-swapping, sheep-stealing, or membership transfer. Baptism reminds us that the Lord desires lost people to be saved, and that's how the work is advanced. And as they repent of their sins and trust in Christ, new believers are to go public with their faith by the means that Christ has prescribed. Baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does one have to believe about Jesus in order to be saved? Everything. I didn't say you have to know everything. After decades of walking with Jesus, Philippians 3.10, Paul still says, I, I want to know him. <laughs> but you cannot be saved and intentionally, stubbornly reject the biblical revelation of who Jesus is. And so he says there's an act of identification, baptism, but that act is tied to faith in who I really am. This is what he means when he says to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is more than a baptismal formula. It is a statement of faith. And just note for yourself, it is name singular, not names plural. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons who share one name. And Jesus here, again, is declaring himself to be equal with the Father. Matthew 11, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal it. Baptism is the declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's, he says, baptize, there's another note here to consider, though, because make disciples means bring them to Jesus. Mark disciples also suggest that we're to bring them to the church. There are only two references to the church in the Gospels. Both are in Matthew, Matthew 16, 18, and Matthew 18, 17, not Matthew 28. The church is not directly mentioned in the Great Commission, but the command to baptize disciples assumes the church. This is not self-baptism in your backyard pool. It assumes the church. Baptism is the watermark that identifies the new believer with Christ and the church. Christ and the church, the two go together. Mark it down, friends. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church at the same time.
Not conversion. Gives us a new identity. Not just toward Christ, but toward others. It is said, blood is thicker than water, but I declare that blood is not thicker than baptism. Galatians 3, 27, 28, as many as been baptized have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or free, but we are one in Christ. Make disciples, mark disciples, mature disciples. Mature the disciples. I'm in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptism is an event that is, as it were, a rite of passage into the Christian life and family. But here we are, we are shown in verse 20 that the disciple-making process does not permit a person to simply make a profession of faith and then go back to their pre-conversion lifestyle. We must turn from our sins and trust in Christ. And whatever initial step of faith we take must become a walk of faith. And if that step doesn't become a walk, we have no legitimate basis of assurance of salvation. John 8, 31 and 32 says, this is the part that gets me about that passage. Jesus says to the Jews, who believed in him. Not the rebellious people who were trying to get rid of him. He said this to those who in some way made a profession of faith. He said to those who believed in him that if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So there must be biblical teaching. A disciple-making church is a teaching church. A disciple-making church is unapologetically a teaching church. Music is important. Programs have their place. Services necessary. But spiritual transformation requires biblical instruction. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuke and for correction and for training in righteousness. It is through biblical instruction that we learn to live out the life of the teachings of our faith. And friends, if there is anything worse than a church that does not teach the truth, it is a church that only teaches the truth selectively. Here, do you see Jesus said, I don't give you editorial authority over my teachings. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It is another reminder, friends, that the Bible is not a cafeteria where you select the foods that you prefer and leave the rest behind. The Bible is Big Mama's house where you eat what she cooked or you don't eat at all. <laughs> I think often of Paul's statement to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 26, and 27. I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. If you die and go to hell, it's not my fault. Your blood is not on my hands, he's saying. I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. There should be biblical teaching and there needs to be practical teaching. 
that involves doctrine and duty. Moody said it well, that the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. We learn the truth that we might live the truth. The benefit of this week is not how many pages of that notebook you fill up. It's what you do with what you hear. Or as Jesus asked in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but won't do what I tell you to do? The Bible doesn't give us the right to accept Jesus as Savior and then determine if we will receive him as Lord at some later point. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, is Lord. He is Lord. You don't get a vote on that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're to obey him personally and practically and pervasively in every sphere of our lives. And as we do so, we should remember the words of Luke 17, verse 10, where Jesus says, and you, after you have done all that I have commanded, you should say, we are just unprofitable servants. We were only doing what was our duty to do. One more statement to consider. A church fulfills the great commission. We, as disciples, make disciples when we Submit to the authority of Jesus, obey the command of Jesus, and then finally believe the assurance of Jesus. The heart of this text is the Lord's instruction to his church. But will you notice that commission is bookended, if you will, by statements of the Lord's commitment to the church. He ends now in verse 20 by saying, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is important, friends. Playing church is convenient. Making disciples is dangerous. Jesus says, I want you to know you're not in this by yourself. Matthew 1, 23 says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, Matthew's gospel ends with that Emmanuel himself declaring, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the third claim, if you keep a score, this is the third claim of deity in this state, in this great commission. Jesus, verse 18, claims all authority. Verse 19, Jesus declares, I am equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 20, Jesus claims omnipresence. I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 18, 20 says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. He is with us when we gather. Now he tells us, I am with you when you go. Oh, friends, just consider the magnitude of that. Aren't you glad he didn't give the Great Commission in verse 19 and 20 and then close by saying, now y'all try to be there for each other. <laughs> this big work, y'all try to be there for each other. No, he says, I, and the I is emphatic. People may promise to be with you and change their minds at any moment. This is not a fickle promise. It is a blessed assurance. Jesus says, I, even I, am with you. This is the language the Old Testament uses when it speaks of God being on someone's side. The refrain of the story of Joseph is that the Lord was with him. Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's what Jesus is saying here when he declares, I am with you 
always, literally all the days. Consider the all-inclusive statements here. Verse 18, all authority. Verse 19, make disciples of all the nations. Verse 20, teach them all that I have commanded you. And while you're doing that, just know I'm with you all the days. Even to the end of the age. He is with us personally, powerfully, presently, perpetually, and permanently. I am with you always to the end of the age. What a comforting pillow to lay your head down on tonight. I went to Kelso Elementary School in Inglewood, right across the street from the farm where the uh, Lakers used to play. I'd walk home with a caravan of kids from my block, and one day, I don't know how it happened, I ended up walking home by myself. I don't, this day I don't remember how that happened. And as I am a block or two away from my, my street, I see in the distance a, a, a boy approaching, not much older, but I was a little tyke. This, this kid looked like Goliath. <laughs> and I'd moved to this side of the, of the sidewalk. He'd moved, and I'd move over. He'd move until he's standing right before me, and he looks down at me. He says, give me your money. shock. He, he, he grabbed me and said, did you hear what I said? I said, give me your money. I just in tears said, I don't have any money. And he grabbed me tighter and said, I'm going to be waiting for you here tomorrow. You better have my money. I ran the rest of the way home. Told my mom and dad what had just happened. And my dad put me in the car and drove around the, the neighborhood for more than an hour looking for that kid. I have no clue what he would have done if he found that kid. <laughs> but we drove for more than an hour. And um, when we got back home, all he said was, I'll, I'll be picking you up and dropping you off from school from now on. And he did. It was an incredible comfort, but I, I knew my father was a busy pastor. I knew. The funeral or something, there was, he, he traveled to preach at times. There was going to come a day when he would not be able to be there. And what if that kid was waiting for me on the day that my old man could not be there. I sat there thinking about that. It just came to me as I was sitting there. My father moved upstairs years ago. He was unable to keep that promise. Go home tonight knowing that we do the Lord's work with an assurance that will never fail. It doesn't matter when it is. It doesn't matter what's going on. It does not matter what the circumstances. He is with us always to the end of the age. How do I know? Glad you asked. I've seen the lightning flashing. I've heard the thunder roll. I've felt sins, breakers, dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I've heard the voice of the Savior telling me to fight on, preach on, 
serve on. For he promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone. Let's pray. Thank you for your word tonight. Thank you afresh for its truth, its wisdom, its authority. Thank you for entrusting us to be your partners in your kingdom work in the world. Thank you for the commitment of your divine authority and your unfailing presence and your strengthening help in our personal witness, in our missionary efforts in our life together as the body of Christ. Thank you that you are in charge and you are with us. For Christ's sake, amen.